Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. So this is my third in a set of three sermons preparing our hearts for our nomination process for elders and deacons. And I've tried to reiterate throughout all of this, everything we're talking about applies to all of us, but I'm using it as a lens for for us to consider and think about who we're going to be praying to nominate to be an elder and deacon at this church. And this series is called Right Standing because when you take the churchy word righteousness and you boil it down to common vernacular, it just means, are you in right standing? And we often only associate righteousness as right standing with God the Father. But throughout Scripture, we see that righteousness, being in right standing, means being in right standing with God. And you can't be in right standing with God if you're not also in right standing with others, your church family and your family, and others, your neighbors, the poor in your community, the lost, the lonely, the marginalized. And we see this over and over in Scripture. 1 John 2 is a great place where you see this idea. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light, to be in right standing with God, but hates a brother or sister, is still in darkness. If you think we're right, like, oh yeah, I'm in the light, I'm with God, but you are not in right standing with your brothers and sisters, then you are in darkness. You have deceived yourself, okay? And so I want to just, uh, oh, I'm going to grab something real quick. Uh, thought of this illustration. Uh, I thought of this illustration, but in 1982, King Olav V came to visit Kling Peterson's grave in Norse, Texas, a community of 110 people at the time. Anna Marie supplied me with this fancy paperweight that was used or sold to commemorate the occasion. King Olaf, the king of Norway, the 5th, October 10th, 1982, Clifton, Texas, came to Clifton. And I, I remember uh, Anna Marie telling a very funny story. You know, Anna Marie tells great stories. Charles tells great stories. But they like to tell the story about him arriving at the St. Olaf's church and, and he gets there and he's got his camera that was a very fancy camera for 1982 and he sees all these men in their aprons grilling burgers can't you picture charles just standing there like with a you know a grill and he's oh look at these guys grilling burgers took a picture of all these men grilling burgers but the reason i wanted to use this story is i can't imagine i just am trying to put myself in the position where i'm here and i hear that the current king of norway let's does norway still have a king i don't know the current king of norway says you know what it's about to be the 250th anniversary of the Norse migration to, to Clifton. By the way, you know, Kling Peterson, if you don't know, he's famous for being the father of the Norwegian immigration to the United States, and one of the biggest places that they settled a community was here, near Clifton. That's why we're the Norwegian state capital of Texas. And, uh, and so, I want you to imagine that the king is like, I'm coming back. What would we try and do today to, to know the, the king is coming to host him? And I called Anna Marie and I, I said, can you remind me, like, y'all really rolled out the red carpet, right? And she said, oh yeah. She said it kind of was a little embarrassing because we thought there would be 20,000 people that showed up. And so we reserved all these lots on Highway 6 of parking places for all these incoming visitors and, and many of the lots didn't get filled at all. So was, she said it was a little embarrassing. But you can imagine that everyone in town for weeks is, all right, we got to make sure we have the TV stations here. We got to make sure we have the news stations. All this prep for the king to come. And I want you to think 
about how we, all, all of us, at different times or another, when we hear that a special person is coming, we kind of do everything we can to make sure everything is just perfect for them, for when they show up. I don't know if it might be that you heard some famous person is coming to visit town and it's, oh, we got we to gotta make sure we have the best food. We got to reserve the nicest place in town. So Ace Hardware? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, I, I like to tell people, I'm like, I think Ace is like one of the coolest places in our town. But, um, you know, we got to reserve the nice place and the nice stuff. We've got to, I, I think this maybe is a situation where, say, uh, Say two people are about to get married and maybe one of them hasn't met their future in-laws yet and the in-laws are coming for Thanksgiving dinner. You can imagine that they're probably really, okay, we got to make everything look great. Everything's got to look perfect for this occasion. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the things we talked about last week was, are you in a right standing with your church family and our community. And there's something about saying, oh yeah, we roll out the red carpet. We're really good at being in community with each other. But how good are you at rolling out the red carpet? How good are you at being in right standing with all those people that you don't know, that aren't as important? Matthew 5 says it like this. This is not exactly what Jesus is talking about, but I'm using it for here. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain. By the way, that's a positive, not a negative here. He sends rain, good, on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors, the, the worst people in the world, are they not even doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And so you can see Jesus is kind of asking the question, all right, you're in right standing with your friends and your church community. Do you want a prize for that? Oh, okay, great. You get along with the people that you like. Would you like a round of applause from me that you get along with people that you like? But how do you treat the people that you don't like? How do you treat the people where, because this is something that was a big deal back then, and it's still kind of a big deal now, but I mean, it was a really big deal back then, but pretty much the only reason you had a relationship with anyone outside of your family was, well, I'm going to give, and they're going to give back, you know? I'm going to scratch their back, they're going to scratch my back. I give you a gift, you give me a gift. Well, how are you going to treat the people that have nothing that they can give back to you? How are you going to treat the people that you don't like, that you don't enjoy being around? What about them? That's how we're really going to know if you love others. So I took this, uh, this is our first main point. I stole this from JFK. Ask not what others can do for you. Ask what you can do for others. The question that we often live by, the world often lives by, is the way I'm going to be in right standing with others is completely predicated on what can they provide for me. Oh, you're the head coach of the football team, and I've got a son who's maybe going to play football? I need to be in right standing with that guy, because he's going to have a lot to do with how much my son plays. That's what I get from the relationship. But Jesus flips it completely over and says, the way that you're in right standing with others is asking the question, not, what can they do for me, but what can I do to be a blessing to them? Let's look at a story from the uh, Old Testament that kind of articulates this and will articulate our next main point. In Genesis 18, verses 1 through 8, we see this story 
It says the Lord, that's, that's uh, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh when it's all caps like that. So it's that Yahweh himself appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Okay, notice this. See how it says my Lord there in lowercase? That is the narrator's way of telling you, Abraham does not know that this is Yahweh. Why? If, if he knew it was Yahweh, it would be what? All caps. So this word is Elohim. If it were Yahweh, it'd be my Lord, all caps. All right? So we can tell Abraham doesn't know that this is God himself in the form of these three men visiting. But he comes and he bows down and he says, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may, have, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. Let me get something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Hey, would y'all just be willing to stop by, let, you know, wash your feet, let me get you some, a little snack, and then you can go on your way. And they responded, very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it to bake some bread. Now, I don't know how many of you have baked bread recently, but this is not just a little short process. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. I don't know when the last time any of you personally slaughtered a calf was, but it's not, not like grabbing a granola bar. Hey, you want a Lara bar? You want, a, you, know, you want something from the fridge? We got some sparkling water. This is a big deal. This is a huge occasion that he is preparing. Then he brought some curds and milk and, and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. This is great Middle Eastern hosting. A real host back there and also in other parts of the world does not eat with the guest. The guest is the honored guest. They stand like a servant ready to do whatever they can. So it says he stood nearby under the tree ready for anything. You want some salt? You want some pepper? Y'all need anything? Okay. Now the story goes on and we get this, uh, we get this telling of how he's told he's gonna, that Sarah will have a child named Isaac and we get all that. But we're not going to get there. The main thing I want you to see is, is that Abraham showed extraordinary hospitality. Not, not, not middle of the road like, yeah, have a seat. You want to sit down? But please stay. Let me get you a little something and then just deliver it above and beyond that. Like, let me really prepare this huge thing for you. And what's really cool is Abraham showed that right standing with others, he showed this right standing with others because he reacted to the strangers as if they were the most important people ever. And ironically, it just so happened that it was the most important being ever. He did not react like, he didn't go, oh, this is just a traveler. I was just going to, eh. And he didn't go, wow, this is God himself. I'm going to prepare a feast. He was like, oh, this is a traveler, and I'm going to prepare a feast as if it were God himself. And yet, it just so happens that it is God who came to visit him. Jesus talks about how the way we treat anyone, especially the least of these, is how we treat him. In Matthew 25, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. If we only treat important people, the king of Norway, if we only treat important people with extravagant hospitality, we are not in right standing with others, 
And when we're not in right standing with others, we're not in right standing with God. I want you to remember the story of Jesus when the disciples are trying to get the children away from Jesus. I think the thing you're supposed to imagine is that Jesus is this important, holy teacher. And parents are bringing their children to Jesus, asking for him to like give them a blessing. Okay, It would be like someone seeing Elvis and saying, please sign my baby. Okay, Or something like that. Please you know, do something where some of your specialness will rub off on my baby or something like that. So these parents are bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples are like, get away, get away. Jesus has more important things to do than to deal with your children. And Jesus says, actually the kingdom of God is for everyone, especially the ones who the world sees as the least important people. I might steal from communion for a second, but Dan talked about the law of supply and demand. How many little children do we've got running around all over the place? Oh, there's a huge supply of little kids running all over. They're not that important. The rarity of them is they're not that important. But we've got some special elite people. There's only a few of these people. These are the people that are really important. We should treat them more important. Guess what Jesus does? He says, actually, all these people that you think are not important, these are the ones that will determine whether or not you're in right standing with others. If you aren't able to be in right standing for the, with the least of these, then you're not in right standing with me. I think I've said it before that I believe, this. I, I learned this from my dad, from watching my dad, the true mark of whether a minister is a good minister or not is how do they ad- deal with and interact with special needs children and special needs adults. Whenever you see my dad around a special needs person, you know that the light is in him, okay? And that's what Jesus would say. is like, listen, I don't give a rip how you treat your friends. I don't care how you treat the important people. Everybody does that. How do you treat others? How are you in right standing with the least of these? How do you show extravagant hospitality to all people as if they were the king? Because all of these people are children of the king, image bearers of the king. And I do want to pause and compliment this church for a second. I believe that so, so many men and women in this congregation are people who will put out all the stops of hospitality for any person. I've seen time and again this church where someone that the world might say is not important comes through those doors and they are treated just the same as everybody else. I see that time and again. I'll shout out Josie Clifton because she's not here. But if Josie invites you over for dinner, you could be the preacher, you could be the mayor, you could be a nobody. And she's going to cook the best meal you've ever had. You know what I mean? She's going to cook incredible steak. She's going to make either a chocolate cake or a cherry pie. You know, she's going to just do everything to make you feel welcome. So I have to remind you, my next passage, I've got to remind you of a sermon I did a while ago. And I talked a little bit about love languages. Love languages are where all of us want to show love, but some of us care a little bit more about love being shown in specific ways, whether it's gift-giving or words of affirmation or time together or physical touch. We just have something where it's like, listen, when you want to show me love, this is a top thing. And I told you that... God has a love language, and he tells us it all the time. He says, listen, I love the ways that you show me love. I appreciate it. But there is one way that shows me love that trumps all the other ones. In the prophets, God tells us, my top love language is, how do you care about the marginalized and the poor in your community? In Amos 5, we read, 
starting in verse 10, I'm going to jump a little bit. Starting in verse 10, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on the grain. He's talking to Israel's leaders. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. These, There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as, he said, as you say He is. I hate, skipping to verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. But wait a second, God, that's one of our top love languages, is our worships, our our Sunday morning service. This is our top way of saying, we love you, we glorify you. And he's saying, listen, in comparison to this, I despise that love language. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will, not, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. We, as we turn our attention back to this concept of nominating elders and deacons, we need leaders and servants whose hearts are for the marginalized. Because we can't be, or I personally and we communally cannot be in right standing with God unless we are in right standing with the poor. Because God cares for them, His church should care for them. And it's hard for a church to care for them if the spiritual leaders and guides don't also. God says, I've got a lot of love languages, but my top one is how are you caring about the marginalized and the poor in your community? And if that hasn't seeped into your heart, it's going to be really hard, if you're a leader, for that not to not seep into the hearts of your community. But if it has seeped into your heart, it's really hard for it not to seep into the culture and the heart of your community. I've got one last Bible verse. Lastly, the way that you treat outsiders is a witness to who our community is and to who our leader is, to who leads us. In Colossians 4, we have, well, I'll go back for anybody who likes to take notes. The way you treat outsiders is a witness. The way we treat everyone who's not a part of this body is a witness to who our community is and who our leader is. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is not a passage about how to win a battle on Facebook. There's a lot of people who've decided they don't want to be a part of a church family because they see the way that Christians react to others on Facebook. Okay? Not very seasoned with grace. All right? There are plenty of people who will say, I don't really know if I want to know about what that community is about based on the way I was treated as an outsider by an insider. But there are people, like you see in Acts 2, where it says, and God continued to add to their number daily, who saw the way that they shared with each other, who saw the way that they treated people and said, I want to know about this community. All right? Does that make sense? Our stance towards outsiders shapes whether or not they want to know more about Jesus and this community or not. Being prepared to give an answer is not because there's going to be people that walk up to you. I have never had a random person walk up to me and say, what's your stance on creation? I've never had an apologetics debate with an outsider. But I have had people 
who are going to ask you, why do you waste all your time going to church? Or why is this something you care so much about? The real question was in high school, I had a lot of guys on the football team who'd be like, Drew, why do you never come with us to the parties after the game? Like, just come one time. That's being prepared to give an answer, okay? It's not like, what's your stance on whatever? That's not what this is talking about. This question is, there are going to be outsiders who see you in the market and see the way that you interact with people and see the fact that you don't worship Artemis or Ephesus or whatever and say, why don't you do that? And you need to be prepared to give an answer that says, it's because I've met this man named Jesus Christ who's changed my life. Okay? So, I have a few practical things that are like loose ends that I really wanted to talk about before I finish, just because I think these things need to be said before you submit your nominations for elders and deacons. These are very practical. Uh, They're kind of random and sporadic, but let me just say these. One, I have done no distinguishing during this series between elders and deacons. There are good places in Scripture where you can read specifically talking about elders and specifically talking about deacons. But if any of you are like, Drew, how should I see the difference. Well, first I'll tell you, I think all of them should be in right standing, elder or deacon. However, the way I oversimplify it is I like to say, if you're nominating an elder, you're nominating someone to be a spiritual guide and mentor for our church community. That doesn't mean a deacon can't be a guide or a mentor. It's just that's what I'm focusing on when I'm thinking about who to nominate for elder. When I'm thinking about who to nominate for deacon, I'm thinking of selfless servants. All right? Doesn't mean that they're not a good guy. Doesn't mean that they're not a mentor. It doesn't mean that elders aren't selfless servants either. That's how I'm distinguishing between the two. One is a spiritual guide. One is a selfless servant. The word deacon itself literally means servant. Okay? In Greek. They weren't saying, like, let's come up with a title. Well, what should we call it? Uh, how about a, uh, a fireman? No. How about a, uh, oh, a deacon? No. It's the word. Just means servant. Okay? All right. The next statement. This is another oversimplification, but it has to do with our series on, or this idea of being in right standing with others. Churches can typically have two kinds of elders. They will either exist to serve the members of the church and what makes the members of the church happy, or they will exist to serve God's mission. You're probably like, well, can't you do both? I think that there's a way to balance both. But it is very hard to serve two masters, okay? There are lots of churches that will nominate people who will be good representatives for what they want to happen at the church. Or there will be often elders that you nominate who say, well, we want people to be happy here, but our top goal here is not to keep our shareholders happy. Our top goal is that we have a mission from God to go and make disciples for all nations. That is our first service, okay? It's very hard to serve both of them. Two more. I want you to imagine that you have a son that's 16 years old. Some of you might actually have a son that's 16 years old. And I want you to imagine that your goal in life was for that son to be a Christ-centered image of God and that, that he was made by God to be. And I told you that a man from our congregation was going to be randomly chosen to spend two hours a week with your son until he turns 18. And I want you to consider nominating men to be elders and deacons of this church that you would really like to be randomly chosen to be a, a mentor for your son. Does that make sense? If you got to take the spiritual care of your child and say, I'd like for two hours a week, two times a week, for you to go and influence my child, who would you say, oh man, I would be honored if this person was able to be that person in their life? 
Okay? I can think about, I've, I've said it before, Larry Doak was a man in my life where he had a carpentry shop. And every Tuesday night for three hours, I would go work in his carpentry shop with him. And typically that meant I sanded. Like, that's all I did. <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of fine furniture, it's like 90% sanding it, okay? But afterwards, he'd pay me for, with a root beer float from Sonic. I can't imagine, and I will never be able to put into terms, how I was shaped as a man by being around him once a week for three hours. So when you're thinking about who to nominate, think about, I would really love it if my son could be around him for two or three hours a week to be shaped by his character and his heart. The next illustration, and this is the last one, and then we'll be done. I want you to imagine that this church had decided that we were going to plant a church in Morgan. Name some random church or some random city that's kind of on the outskirts of Clifton. We were going to plant a church there and there is a desperate need for this healthy community of faith. And what's very important about this plant is that the foundation is laid really well. And we needed to send men from this church and say, we need you to go because we think you would be excellent at helping start a very healthy foundation for this church family to be cultivated on. Who would you think of to say, well, we need people that are really going to do a good job of being patient. We need people who are really going to do a good job of making sure the heart of the church is focused on what it needs to be focused on. Making sure that people are being, the hospitality that this church has, we need to make sure that it gets taken and started there. That the same way that people feel so welcome when they come in this room, they need to feel welcome when they go into that space. So we need to make sure that these people are the ones that are there. This is another illustration you can put in your head when you're trying to think about who am I going to nominate to be an elder or deacon is would I want my son to be with him? Would I want our new church plant to have a culture that permeates from who these people are? Okay? Does that make sense? If any of you have any prayer requests, if you have anything that you would like to discuss, elders are going to be standing at the doors. And if any of you feel like you would like to talk more about what it means to be in right standing with Jesus, to be uh, in the light as He is in the light, um, we'd love to talk to you while we stand and while we sing this song.